Chapter 14 John Berridge, The Man In the 1700s there were spiritual giants in the eastern counties of England, as well as in Lancashire and Wales. The sixth leader of the great revival of the 18th century, whom I want to introduce to my readers and listeners, was a man as remarkable in his way as Grimshaw and Rowlands. Like them, he lived in an obscure and out-of-the-way village, and also like them, he shook the earth around him and was one of those who turned the world upside down. Acts 17, 6. The man I mean is John Berridge, vicar of Everton in the county of Bedfordshire. Of all the English evangelists of the eighteenth century, this good man was undeniably the most peculiar and eccentric. Without controversy, he was a very odd person, a comet rather than a planet, a man who must be put in a class by himself. He was a minister who said and did things that nobody else could say or do. The eccentricities of the vicar of Everton are probably better known than his graces. With all his peculiarities, he was a man of rare gifts, and was deeply taught by the Holy Spirit. Above all, he was a mighty instrument for good in the orbit in which he moved. Few preachers in the 1700s were more honored by God and more useful to souls than the eccentric John Berridge. My account of this good man is compiled from very limited materials. A single small volume that contains his writings, along with a short biography by his assistant, Mr. Whittingham, are the only sources of information about him that I can find. However, this should not surprise us. He was never married, and he lived completely alone. He lived in an isolated rural parish, far away from London, in days when there were no railways and even main roads were not good. His parish was far from his own family, in a county where, apparently, he had no relatives or connections. He wrote very little, and was mainly known by his preaching. Add to this the fact that Berridge belonged to a group that was spoken against everywhere, Acts 28.22, and we don't need to wonder that the records that remain of him are very few. However, there is a memorial of him that will never perish. The last day will show that his master kept a book of remembrance, Malachi 3.16, and that his record is on high, Job 16.19. John Berridge was born at Kingston in the county of Nottinghamshire on March 1, 1716, within a very few years of Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, Romaine, and Rowlands. His father was a wealthy farmer and herdsman at Kingston, who married a Miss Sarah Hathwaite in the year 1714. John Berridge was his eldest son. He had three other sons, about whom I can find out nothing except that his brother Thomas lived and died at Chatteris in the Isle of Ely, and outlived his brother John. The first fourteen years of Berridge's life were mainly spent with an aunt at Nottingham, with whom he was a particular favorite. It was here that he received the beginnings of his education, but at what school and under what teacher I have been unable to determine. It is evident that, even as a boy, he was notable for seriousness and steadfastness, so much so that he captured the attention of all who knew him. There is not, however, the slightest evidence that he knew anything at this time of biblical religion, nor was it likely, I am afraid, that he would hear anything about it in Nottingham in those days. 
There's no doubt that later in life he had much reason to be thankful for his early morality. Steadiness and correctness of life, of course, are not conversion, and they don't save anyone's soul, but still they are not to be despised. The scars left by youthful sins, even after forgiveness and complete reconciliation with God, are never wholly erased, and the remembrance of them often causes bitter sorrow. Berish himself credits his first serious impressions of Christianity to a specific circumstance. One day, as he was returning from school, a boy who lived near his aunt invited him into his house and asked if he would be able to read to him out of the Bible. He consented. This, however, happened several times, and he began to feel a secret reluctance, and would gladly have declined if he had dared. But having obtained the reputation of being pious, he was afraid to risk it by refusing. One day, however, as he was returning from a fair where he had been spending a holiday, he hesitated to pass the door of his neighbor, afraid that he would be invited in as before. The boy, however, was waiting for him, and not only invited him to come in and read the Bible, but also asked if they could pray together. It was then that Berridge began to realize that he was not right before God, or else he would not have felt the reluctance that he did to the boy's invitations. The effect of that day's meeting was that not long afterward he himself began a similar practice with his companions. Facts such as these are always interesting to those who study God's ways of dealing with souls. It is clear that He often moves on the face of hearts by His Spirit long before He introduces light, order, and life. Genesis 1 2. We must never despise the day of small things. Zechariah 4 10. The impressions and convictions of children, especially, should never be rudely treated or overlooked. They often have a green spot in their characters that should be carefully cultivated by good advice kind encouragement, and prayer. Berridge, unfortunately, seems to have had no one near him at this critical period to guide and direct him. Who can tell but the counsel of some Aquila or Priscilla, if they had found him at Nottingham, might have saved him from many years of darkness and from many agonizing exercises of mind. At the age of fourteen, John Berridge left school and returned to his home at Kingston with the intention of taking up his father's business. This plan, however, soon fell to the ground. His father used to take him around to markets and fairs in order for him to become familiar with the price of cattle, sheep, and pigs, and to learn his business by observation and experience. The next step, of course, was to ask him to give his judgment of the value of animals that his father wanted to purchase a matter in which necessarily lies the whole secret of a herdsman's success. Here, however, poor John was so invariably wrong in his estimates that old Mr. Berridge began to despair of ever making him into a herdsman. He often used to say, John, I notice you can't form any idea of the price of cattle, and I will have to send you to college to be a light to the Gentiles. We don't know how long this state of suspense about Berridge's future life continued. In all probability, it went on for two or three years, and was a cause of much family trouble. An old Nottinghamshire herdsman was not likely to let his oldest son forsake oxen and sheep and go to college without a hard struggle to keep him there. However, the son's dislike for his father's calling was deep and insurmountable. Furthermore, his religious impressions continued, 
and were deepened by conversation with a tailor in Kingston, with whom he became so close that his friends threatened to bind him to articles of apprenticeship under him. At last old Mr. Berridge, seeing that his son had no apparent inclination for anything except reading and religion, had the good sense to give up his cherished plans and consent to his going to Cambridge. Thus John Berridge finally entered Clare Hall at Cambridge on October 28, 1734, at the age of nineteen. God's ways are certainly not like man's ways, Isaiah 55, 8. As strange as it may seem, for fourteen or fifteen years after entering Clare Hall, John Berridge seems to have gone backward rather than forward in spiritual things. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1738 and his Master of Arts degree in 1742. About the same time he was elected Fellow of his college, and he lived there doing comparatively nothing until 1749. He was a man who read much, and he made such progress in every branch of literature that he obtained a high reputation in the university as a thorough scholar. A clergyman who knew him well for fifty years said that John Berridge was as familiar with Greek and Latin as he was with his mother tongue. He himself said that at this period of his life he sometimes read fifteen hours a day. However, his very cleverness became a snare to him. His natural love of humor and social inclination resulted in bringing upon him many temptations. His acquaintance was sought by people of high power and position. Men like William Pitt, afterward Lord Chatham, were among his intimate associates and friends. All this, no doubt, was very pleasant to flesh and blood, but was very bad for his soul. He had to learn by bitter experience that wit and brilliant powers of conversation, just like beauty, musical skill, and a fine voice, are very perilous possessions. They seem to help people forward in this world, but they are in reality most dangerous to those who possess them. Richard Whittingham, Berridge's biographer, says of him at this time, While he was at college, if it was known that he would be present at any public dinner, the table was sure to be crowded with company who were delighted with the uniqueness of his conversation and his witty sayings. But as evil communications corrupt good manners, 1 Corinthians 15.33, so Berridge quickly caught the spirit of his company and drank in the Socinian scheme of religion to such a degree that he lost all his serious impressions, and he discontinued private prayer for the space of ten years, a few intervals excepted. In these intervals he would weep bitterly, reflecting on his sad state of mind compared with what it was when he first came to the university. He would often say to a fellow student who later became an eminent clergyman, Oh, that it were with me as in years past! This part of Berridge's history is indeed a sad picture. It's even more so when we remember that it was during this period of his life that he must have taken holy orders as a fellow of Clare Hall, and professed that he was inwardly moved by the Holy Spirit to take upon him the office of a minister. He was probably ordained by the Bishop of Ely. We can see how utterly unfit he was for the ministerial office from the account given of him by Whittingham. Yet it is a sorrowful fact, I fear, that the case of Berridge has been similar to that of thousands of others. No earthly condition appears to be so deadening to a man's soul as the position of a resident fellow of a college and the society of a common room at Oxford or Cambridge. If Berridge fell for a season 
before the influences brought to bear upon his soul at Clare Hall, we must remember that he was exposed to extraordinary temptations. How scarcely shall resident fellows of colleges enter the kingdom of God! It was a miracle of grace that he was not cast away forever and did not sink beneath the waters, never to rise again. In the year 1749, it pleased God to awaken his conscience once more and to revive within him his old religious impressions. In that year, after eleven years of apparent idleness, he began to feel a desire to do something as a clergyman, and he accepted the position of minister of Stapleford near Cambridge. At this period, he was thirty-three years old, and so had lost no less than ten valuable years of time. Berridge entered his duties as minister of Stapleford with much zeal and a sincere desire to do good, and he served his church regularly from college for about six years. He took much effort with his parishioners and urged upon them very earnestly the importance of sanctification, but without producing the slightest effect on their lives. His preaching, even at this time, was compelling, plain, and engaging. His life was moral, upright, and correct. His diligence as a pastor was undeniable, yet his ministry throughout these six years was entirely without fruit, to his own great annoyance and displeasure. The fact was that up to this time he was completely ignorant of the gospel. He didn't really know what message he had to deliver to his hearers. He knew nothing properly of Christ crucified, of justification by faith in His blood, of salvation by grace, of the complete present forgiveness of all who believe, and of the absolute necessity of coming to Christ as our Saviour as the very first step toward heaven. At this time these blessed truths were hidden from him, and he could tell his people nothing about them. No wonder that he did no good. If he wounded, he could not heal. If he pulled down, he could not build up. If he showed his flock that they were wrong, he had no idea what could make them right. Basically, his Christianity was like a solar system without the sun, and of course it did no good to his congregation. There can be no doubt that he learned lessons as minister of Stapleford that he remembered to the last day of his life. He learned the thorough uselessness of a ministry, no matter how zealous, in which Christ does not have his rightful place and in which faith does not have its rightful place. However, we can well believe that the clever and accomplished fellow of Clare learned his lesson, with much humiliation and with many bitter tears. In the year 1755, John Berridge was presented by his college to the role of the Vicar of Everton in Bedfordshire. He took up his residence at once and did not move from that ministry until he was called away to a better world after ministering there for no less than thirty-eight years. It was at this place that his eyes were opened to the whole truth as it is in Jesus, and the whole tone of his ministry was changed. It was here that he first found out the enormous mistakes of which he had been guilty as a teacher of others, and where he began to preach in a scriptural manner the real gospel of Christ. The circumstances under which this change took place are so well described by his biographer Whittingham that I think it is best to give the account in his own words. At Everton, Mr. Berridge at first urged sanctification and regeneration on his hearers as strenuously as he had at Stapleford, but with as little success. 
nor was it to be wondered at, since his preaching tended to make them trust in themselves as righteous rather than to depend on Christ for the remission of sins. Having continued for two years in this unsuccessful way of preaching, yet with his desire to do good continually increasing, he began to be discouraged. A doubt arose in his mind whether he was right himself and whether he preached as he should. He rejected this idea for some time with disdain, supposing that the advantages of education, which he had improved to a high degree, could not have left him ignorant of the best manner of instructing his people. This happened around Christmas, 1757. But not being able to get rid of these secret doubts, his mind was brought into a state of embarrassment and distress to which before this time he had been a stranger. However, this had the positive effect of making him cry mightily to God for direction. The constant language of his heart was this, Lord, if I am right, keep me so, if I am not right, make me so, and lead me to the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. After the persistent repetition of this childlike prayer, it's no wonder that God would lend a gracious ear and return him an answer, which he did almost two days later. As he sat one morning meditating on a text of Scripture, the following words seemed to dart into his mind like a voice from heaven, Cease from your own works, only believe. At once the scales seemed to fall from his eyes, and he understood the application. He saw the rock on which he had been divided for many years by attempting to blend the law and the gospel and to unite Christ's righteousness with his own. Immediately he began to think on the words faith and believe, and looking into his concordance he saw that they were often used in the Bible. This surprised him so much that he instantly resolved to preach Jesus Christ and salvation by faith. He therefore composed several sermons along these lines, and he addressed his hearers in a manner very unusual and far more direct than before. God very soon began to bless this new style of ministry. After he had preached in this way for two or three Sundays, and was wondering whether he was doing things right yet, since he had not noticed any different result among his congregation than from his previous manner of preaching, one of his parishioners came and inquired for him. Being introduced, he said, Well, Sarah, what is the matter? She replied, Why, I don't know what the matter is. Your new sermons. I find we are all to be lost now. I can neither eat, drink, nor sleep. I don't know what is to become of me. The same week, two or three more people came with the same kind of concern. It's easy to imagine what relief these visits must have given his mind that had been in a state of anxiety and suspense. He was so confirmed and convinced by this that his recent beliefs were from God that he determined in future to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was deeply ashamed that he had spent so many years of his life to no better purpose than to confirm his hearers in their ignorance. He therefore immediately burned all his old sermons and shed tears of joy over their destruction. This circumstance awakened the neighborhood. His church soon became crowded with hearers, and God gave testimony to the word of His grace in the frequent conviction and conversion of sinners. In describing this period of his life, Berridge says in a letter to a friend, I preached sanctification by the works of the law very earnestly for six years in Stapleford, and never brought one soul to Christ. I did the same at Everton for two years without any success at all. But as soon as I preached Jesus Christ and faith in His blood, then believers were added to the church continually. 
Then people flocked from all parts to hear the glorious sound of the gospel, some coming six miles, others eight, and others ten. What's the reason why my ministry was not blessed when I preached salvation partly by faith and partly by works? It's because this doctrine is not of God, and because He will prosper no ministers except those who preach salvation in His own appointed way, namely, by faith in Jesus Christ. I feel sorry for the person who can read or hear such an account as this without interest. If ever there was a case in which we can clearly see the hand of the Holy Spirit, it was this case of John Berridge. Here is a clergyman in the prime of bodily and mental strength who was suddenly changed from being a preacher of morality into a preacher of Christ's gospel. He was not a mere boy, but was a man of forty-two years of age, well-read, of acknowledged literary attainments, and the very opposite of a fool. He was not persuaded and influenced by any living person, and seemed to have no earthly friend or adviser. Yet, all of a sudden, he began to preach the very same doctrine as Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, Romaine, and Rowlands, and with the same effects. Only one explanation can be given for this. It was the finger of God. Flesh and blood did not reveal the truth to Berridge, but our Father who is in heaven. It would be good for the churches if there were more cases like his. Once enlightened by the Holy Spirit and brought into the liberty of God's children, John Berridge made rapid advances, both in preaching and practice. He wasn't a man to do anything halfway, whether converted or unconverted. As soon as he was converted, he threw himself with great energy into his master's service, with all his might, soul, and strength. He soon stopped preaching written sermons, having discovered by a providential accident that he possessed the happy gift of being able to preach without notes. His next step was to begin preaching outside his own parish, all over the district in which he lived, like a missionary. He began this on June 22, 1758. One of the first fruits of this itinerant preaching was a clergyman named Hicks, rector of Wrestlingworth, near Everton, who afterward became a very useful man and a faithful labourer in Christ's vineyard. Berridge's third and ultimate step was to begin preaching out of doors, which he began doing on May 14, 1759. He describes it himself in a letter quoted by Whittingham. On the next Monday, Mr. Hicks accompanied me to Mildred. On the way, we called at a farmhouse. After dinner, I went into the yard, and seeing nearly a hundred and fifty people, I called for a table, and I preached for the first time in the open air. We then went to Meldred, where I preached in a field, to about four thousand people. In the morning, at five, Mr. Hicks preached in the same field to about a thousand. Here the presence of the Lord was wonderfully among us, and I trust, beside many that were slightly wounded, nearly thirty received heartfelt conviction. Berridge had now climbed to the top rung of the ladder as an evangelist. He preached the pure gospel. He preached extemporaneously. He preached anywhere and everywhere he could get hearers. He preached, like his master, in the open air, if need required. We cannot therefore wonder that he was soon publicly known as a fellow labourer with Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, and Romaine, and that as a popular preacher he was not much inferior to any of these great men. For the next thirty years, with little break, his life from this time forth was spent in preaching the gospel. 
He gave himself entirely to this work, in season and out of season, out of doors or indoors, in churches or in barns, in streets or in fields, in his parish or out of his parish. Berridge was constantly telling the story of the cross and exhorting sinners to repent, believe, and be saved. He became acquainted with Lady Huntington, John Thornton, John Wesley, John Fletcher, John Newton, and other eminent Christians of his day, and he kept up friendly fellowship with them. He sometimes went to London in the winter and preached occasionally in Whitefield's well-known tabernacle on Tottenham Court Road. In general, though, he seldom went far from his own district, and he rarely went into society. He found enough, and more than enough, to do in meeting the spiritual needs of congregations within that district, and he seldom went to regions beyond. The extent of his labors was immense. He used to preach in every part of Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, and Huntingdonshire, and in many parts of Hertfordshire, Essex, and Suffolk. He would often preach twelve times and ride a hundred miles in a week. Nor was he content with just preaching. He also watched carefully over those who were awakened by his sermons, and he provided lay evangelists to look after them when he left them. Some of these evangelists appear to have been nothing but humble laboring men, and Berridge paid for them out of his own pocket. He cheerfully paid these expenses as long as he had a dollar to spare, counting it an honor to spend his income in furthering Christ's gospel. When he had nothing of his own to give, he would ask help from the well-known John Thornton, the London merchant, and to the honor of that good man he never seems to have asked in vain. The spiritual effects that were produced by his preaching were immense. In fact, a special blessing seems to have accompanied his ministry from the very moment that he began to preach the gospel. When we find that he was the means of awakening no fewer than four thousand people in one single year, we can have some idea of the good that he did in his district by his thirty years of preaching. In calculations like these, allowance must always be made for a vast amount of exaggeration, and also for an equally vast amount of excitement and false profession. Still, after every reasonable deduction has been made, there is no just reason to doubt that Berridge was the means of doing good to thousands of souls. Wherever he went, he produced some impression. Some were rescued from sin, some were awakened and convinced, and some were thoroughly converted to God. If this is not doing good, there is no such thing as doing good in the world. Spiritual work done in rural parishes is some of the less seen-of-men work than any work within the province of the Christian ministry. The work that Berridge did among farmers and laborers had few to proclaim and record it, but I strongly suspect that the last day will prove that he was a man who seldom preached in vain. How few there are of whom this can be said! It is undeniable that at certain periods of Berridge's ministry very odd physical effects were produced on those who were stirred up by his preaching. Some of his hearers cried out aloud hysterically, some were thrown into strong convulsions, and some fell into a kind of trance that lasted a long time. These physical effects were carefully noticed by John Wesley and others who witnessed them, and certainly tended to bring discredit on the gospel and to prejudice worldly people. It is only fair to Berridge to say, though, that he never encouraged these demonstrations, and he certainly did not regard them as a necessary mark of conversion.
That such phenomena will sometimes appear in cases of strong religious excitement, that they are strangely catching and infectious, especially among young women, that even the most scientific medical men are greatly puzzled to explain them, all these are facts that have been thoroughly established within the last twenty years during the Irish Revival. To attempt to devalue Berridge's usefulness because of these things is simply ridiculous. Whatever the faults of the Vicar of Everton were, he certainly does not seem to have promoted fanaticism. The most that can be said about him on this matter is that he was perplexed by the physical demonstrations I have described, and at first attached more value to them than they deserved. But after all, the same can be said of many calm and serious-minded witnesses who saw the Ulster Revival in 1858. In summary, the whole subject is a very deep and mysterious one, and there we must be content to leave it. A minister should certainly not be considered a fanatic because people go into convulsions under his preaching. It is needless to tell any Christian that John Berridge was fiercely persecuted by the world throughout the whole period of his ministry. No name was too bad to be given to him. No means were left untried by his enemies to stop him in his useful career. Foremost, of course, among his persecutors were the unconverted clergy of Bedfordshire, Huntingdonshire, and Cambridgeshire, who, like the dog in the manger, would neither do good themselves nor let anyone else do it for them. Notably enough, though, no weapon forged against the Vicar of Everton seemed to prosper. Like Grimshaw at Howarth, there was an invisible wall of protection around him that his bitterest foes could not pull down. As irregular as his proceedings undoubtedly were, as offensive as they necessarily must have been to the lazy, worldly clergyman who lived near him, they appeared unable to lay hold upon him and close his mouth from the beginning to the end of his ministry. From some extraordinary cause that we cannot now explain, the itinerant evangelist of Everton was never stopped by his persecutors for a single day. So true is the word of God, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. One special intervention of God in order to protect Berridge from his enemies was so remarkable that it deserves particular notice. It derives a special interest from the fact that the record of it has been handed down in the good man's own words. He said, Soon after I began to preach the gospel at Everton, the church was filled from the villages around us, and the neighboring clergy felt themselves hurt at their churches being deserted. A person of my own parish, too, was much offended. He didn't like to see so many strangers and to be so inconvenienced. Between them both, it was resolved, if possible, to have me removed from my parish. For this purpose, they complained about me to the bishop of the diocese, telling him that I had preached outside of my parish. I was soon after sent for by the bishop. I didn't much like my errand, but I went. When I arrived, the bishop confronted me in a very abrupt manner. Well, Berridge, they tell me you go about preaching out of your own parish. Did I install you to the livings of these other towns? No, my lord, I said, nor do I claim any of these livings. The clergymen enjoy them undisturbed by me. Well, but you go and preach there, which you have no right to do. It is true, my lord. I was one day at Eham. There were a few poor people assembled together, 
and I admonished them to repent of their sins, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. I remember seeing five or six clergymen that day, my lord, all out of their own parishes upon Iham Bowling Green. He replied, I tell you, you have no right to preach outside of your own parish, and if you do not stop doing so, you will very likely be sent to Huntingdon Jail. As to that, my lord, I said, I have no greater desire to be in Huntington Jail than other people, but I would rather go there with a good conscience than to live at my liberty without one. The bishop looked very intently at me, and very seriously assured me that I was a bit insane, and that in a few months' time I would either be better or worse. Then, I said, you may make yourself quite happy in this business, for if I would be better, you would think I should stop this practice of my own accord, and if I am worse, you do need to send me to Huntington Jail, as I will be provided with a room in Bedlam, an asylum for the mentally ill. The bishop then changed his method of attack. Instead of threatening, he began to plead. Verage, he said, you know I have been your friend for a long time, and I want to remain so. I am continually bothered with the complaints of the clergymen around you. Simply assure me that you will keep to your own parish. You may do as you please there. I have but little time to live. Don't bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to the grave. At this moment, two gentlemen were announced who wanted to speak with the bishop. Berridge, he said, go to your inn and come again later and dine with me. I went, and upon entering a private room, immediately fell upon my knees. I could handle being threatened, but I didn't know how to withstand pleading, especially the pleadings of a respectable old man. At the appointed time, I returned. I was treated with great respect at dinner. The two gentlemen also ate with us. I found that they had been informed who I was, as they sometimes cast their eyes toward me in the same kind of manner as one would glance at a monster. After dinner, the bishop took me into the garden. Well, Berridge, he said, have you considered my request? I have, my lord, I said, and I have been upon my knees about it. Well, will you promise me that you will not preach any more out of your own parish? It would give me great pleasure, I said, to comply with your request, if I could do it with a good conscience. I'm satisfied that the Lord has blessed my labors of this kind, and I dare not stop. A good conscience, said the bishop. Don't you know that it's contrary to the canons of the church? There is but one canon, my lord, I replied, that says, Go preach the gospel to every creature. But why would you want to interfere with the duties of other men? One man cannot preach the gospel to the entire world. If they would preach the gospel themselves, I said, there would be no need for me to preach it to their people. But since they do not, I cannot stop. The bishop then left me, expressing his displeasure. I returned home not knowing what would happen to me, but I was thankful to God that I had preserved my conscience void of offense. I took no measures for my own preservation but divine providence worked for me in a way I never expected. When I was at Clare Hall, I was closely acquainted with a certain fellow of that college, and we were both close friends with Mr. Pitt, the late Lord Chatham, who was also at the university at that time. When I began to preach the gospel, this fellow of Clare Hall became my enemy, and did me some harm. In time, however, when he heard that I was likely to come into trouble and to be removed from the ministry at Everton, his heart relented. He began to think within himself, We will ruin this poor fellow among us. 
This was right about the time that I was sent for by the bishop. Of his own accord, he wrote a letter to Mr. Pitt, saying nothing about my Methodism, but wrote in this manner, Our old friend Berridge has got a living in Bedfordshire, and I am told there is one of his neighbours who gives him a great deal of trouble, has accused him to the bishop, and, it is said, will remove him from his living. I wish you would try to stop this. Mr. Pitt was then a young man, and not wanting to take the matter himself to the bishop, spoke to a certain nobleman about it, to whom the bishop was indebted for his promotion. This nobleman made it his business, within a few days, to see the bishop, who was then in London. My lord, he said, I was told that you have a very honest fellow named Berridge in your diocese, and that he has been poorly treated by a contentious neighbour. I hear he has accused him to you, and wants him removed from his parish. You would please me, my lord, if you would take no notice of this person, and not allow the honest man to be stopped. The bishop was astonished, and could not imagine how the news had travelled so much around. It would not do, however, to object. He was compelled to comply, and so I continued ever after uninterrupted in my sphere of action. As great as Berridge's labours were, they don't appear to have materially affected his bodily health. He seems to have possessed one of those iron constitutions that nothing but old age can quite break down. He lived to be seventy-seven, and although in his later years he was a feeble old man, and very solitary, without wife, sister, or brother to minister to him, he was mercifully kept in great peace to the end. Henry Owen's account of visiting Berridge in 1792, the year before he died, is very touching and interesting. He said, I recently visited my dear brother Berridge. His sight is very dim, his ears can scarcely hear, and his faculties are fast decaying, so that, if he continues any amount of time, he may outlive the use of them. But in this ruin of his earthly tabernacle, it is surprising to see the joy in his countenance and the lively hope with which he looks for the day of his death. In his prayer with me and my children, we were much affected by his commending himself to the Lord as quite alone, not able to read or hear or do anything. But he said, Lord, if I have your presence and love, that is enough. John Berridge died at the Everton Parsonage on January 22, 1793. For a little while the infirmities natural to his years had prevented him from doing much public work. However, he was most mercifully spared any long season of pain and disease, and he died after only a few days of illness the weary wheels of life not so much broken by sickness as worn out and standing still. His frame of mind during his last days was very comfortable. He only spoke a little, but what he did say was in terms of gratitude for the rich support he experienced in the prospect of eternity. He felt the stability of the rock on which he had been long resting his hope of heaven. While speaking of the excellency and preciousness of the Saviour, he said in an emphatic manner, what would I do now if I had no better foundation to rest upon than what Dr. Priestley, the Socinian, points out? Berridge was buried in the Everton churchyard on the following Sunday, amid an immense crowd of people assembled from all parts of the country. Six clergymen, devout men, carried him to his grave and made great lamentation over him. A funeral sermon was then preached by the well-known Charles Simeon, from 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, a text admirably well suited to the occasion.
Old Henry Venn of Yelling, his son John Venn, and Charles Simeon were among the few neighbors with whom the good old vicar of Everton felt entire sympathy. His letters give frequent evidence of the value he placed on them and the pleasure he took in their company. Berridge's grave is on the northeast side of the Everton churchyard, where previously the only ones buried there were those who had come to some dishonorable end. But before Berridge died, he frequently said that his remains should be laid in that part of the churchyard, which he said with characteristic pleasantry might be a means of consecrating it. His epitaph, which he composed himself, is so remarkable in its way that I don't think it's necessary to make any excuse for giving it in its entirety. It's inscribed on the south side of his headstone, and at the time of his death required nothing but the date of that event being inserted to complete it. True to himself, Berridge was quaint even to his grave. Here lay the earthly remains of John Berridge, late vicar of Everton, and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. Reader, are you born again? No salvation without a new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754, admitted to Everton Vicarage in 1755, fled to Jesus alone for refuge in 1756, fell asleep in Christ, January 22, 1793. I leave the vicar of Everton here. I still have other things to tell about him, but I have no room to give them now. A few anecdotes illustrating his character, along with some account of his sermons, literary remains, and correspondence, will form the substance of the next chapter.